Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. On the day that we record this, a arguably fascist political leader in Italy has won an election and will almost certainly become its next prime minister. This is an indicator of a wider phenomenon of populist and far-right nationalist leaders finding success at the polls in various European countries. The case study of Hungary is a fascinating one, where Viktor Orban, originally seen as a liberal and a democrat, has taken his party in an increasingly right-wing direction, arguably ending democracy itself in that country. To help us understand this phenomenon, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Jolt Enyadi, who is a professor at the Central European University in Hungary and also a senior researcher at their Democracy Institute. Jolt, welcome. Thanks for having me. The first thing I I wanted to examine is whether it is appropriate to look at the case study of Hungary and Viktor Orban in the same context as I have just mentioned with Italy. And also, of course, in Sweden, you have the Sweden Democrats who were very successful in the elections there, albeit may not entering government. Are these part of a similar political movement or is is, is Hungary different in some way? Well, ideologically, it's completely correct. They are all arch-conservative, anti-immigrant, very much mobilized against political correctness, and they are for kind of sovereignist uh, discourse where they deny the influence of the European Union as a progressive force that tries to shift uh, social economic relations in a more tolerant and cosmopolitan direction. So in that regard, Fidesz and Orban fits the picture very well. On the other hand, Hungary is, of course, uh, structured differently than Italy or Sweden. Most importantly, as you mentioned, Hungary cannot be considered as a proper liberal democracy anymore. So the reasons why Orban can win election after election are partly different from the reasons why Meloni could win now this uh, Italian election, for example. Yeah. I want to talk about the structural changes that have occurred in Hungary, as you say, to to take it past what could be called a democracy. But before we go there, perhaps we could talk a little bit about Viktor Orban himself. As some listeners may be aware, as a young man, he actually was the recipient of a British government scholarship. Uh, He came to study in this country and he was on the sort of centrist liberal ground in politics. So what caused this very intriguing journey that he has been on from uh, somebody who might be in Britain would be a liberal democrat to what he is now? Indeed, Orban studied at Oxford and he was indeed a liberal politician. He started changing already back around 1992-1993 and at that time the change was purely tactical At that time, we had a large center-right party, the Hungarian Democratic Forum, that was in government. And that party, its voters started to evaporate. And Orban realized that uh, there is a niche for him. So he started shifting towards the right back then. This uh, shift was very gradual. So around 1994, 95, he was still lecturing actually others about how to be a proper liberal politician. And then in 1996, 1997, he relabeled himself as a Christian Democrat. 
he left uh, the liberal international and the liberal party family. And from then on, he portrayed himself as a center-right, nationalist, but moderate politician. Yeah. And then uh, around 2002, 2003, he thought that this role is not paying off anymore either. And he started to move his party towards the extreme right where he is now. So would you say that ultimately his maneuvers have been about a kind of ruthless pragmatism? Uh, that he he sees opportunity for his party, for his political movement, and he seizes it in in a certain political direction. And in that, we may say he's rather like Boris Johnson, who, as London mayor, was, yes, a conservative on his badge, but ran as a kind of internationalist liberal, and yet became the leader of the Brexit movement, and ultimately, in British politics, took a very populist and what one might say nationalist direction. Is this what, what Orban has done? He's essentially just followed the political opportunity or is do you think there's some deeper underlying belief system that's guiding him? I think originally opportunism uh, captures well his way of thinking and reacting to the changing uh, political landscape. But he has a gift that uh, few politicians have that once he embarks on a strategy, he develops an appropriate uh, discourse and behavior and believes in it himself. So I think by now, he genuinely believes in this authoritarian worldview. He is an ideologue, as opposed to Johnson. He invests a lot of energy into socializing new generation, into a kind of radical right-wing nationalist anti-liberal uh, way of thinking. And by now, I think his behavior is shaped as much by value-related considerations as by sheer political opportunism. So I would not describe him anymore as a pragmatic politician who simply senses uh, what the people want, but as someone who actively shapes the demand side. He puts enormous amount of money into changing the way of thinking of Hungarians and even the way of thinking of people outside of Hungary. So I think that's a good point for us to bridge into the actual methodology. As you said right at the outset, Hungary uh, can no longer be considered in conventional terms as a democracy. What are the things that have changed I think the most shocking aspect of the way how the Hungarian system changed is the loss of state neutrality. The state behaves as the arm of a political party, Fidesz. National TV and radio are propaganda channels. The constitutional court is packed by diehard uh, Fidesz supporters and personal friends of Orban who uh, interpret the law according to the taste of uh, the leader. Virtually any cultural uh, body in the country, from the national theater to sport associations, everywhere you find people who were handpicked by Viktor Orban, who openly identify with the party's cause and behave as, as partisan actors, which means that as a citizen in Hungary, although you have right for information and you have right to vote any way, any way you wish, 
you get extremely one-sided information about how uh, the world works and um, you feel being ruled by a one-party state. Now, some people listening to this might say, well, you know, here in the UK, we, we have this situation where, you know, for example, the, the funding for um, regional development is always going to areas that support the Conservative Party. But this has gone much more extreme in Hungary. One area that appears to be particularly high impact is in the area of media and public debate. Can you talk us through what have been the changes there? The government started its career in 2010-11 by changing the media law, and that attracted quite a bit of international attention, allowing the government to reshape the public uh, broadcasting and and have a clear partisan uh, influence there. But the real trick was not this change, but a much more subtle and cunning uh, strategy whereby businessmen close to the government, both independent media, they have invested an enormous amount of money in even into media outlets that are um, financially uh, not viable, but just in order to have a quasi-monopoly of information, uh, they purchased uh, them as well. Yeah. And they have even bought opposition uh, uh, newspapers in order to close them down. And so in that context, if a a Hungarian citizen switches on the TV and looks for TV news, uh, is there still a a Hungarian local news channel that is not uh, partisan in its its production? Well, as far as uh, radio is concerned, there is clearly none, because the last one was deprived of its license a couple of years ago. As far as TV is concerned, there are two which contain some degree of information that uh, uh, is favorable uh, for the opposition. But one is a commercial channel owned by Germans, RTL, and 90% of that station broadcasts entertainment. So the political section is extremely small. And the other one, ATV, is a channel owned by um, charismatic evangelical church, which is extremely conservative in its cultural messaging. But besides these two, there is basically nothing. And what is even more uh, disturbing is that if you listen to a music channel, for example, the news will be pure governmental propaganda. So you cannot escape uh, the messaging of Viktor Orban if you turn uh, the radio or the TV channel to some uh, neutral uh, entertainment-focused programming. And is it relevant here that Hungarian is, of course, a very unusual language with its Finno-Ugrian roots and so on, that it it perhaps uh, is harder for international media to penetrate the Hungarian market? True. Uh, Obviously, younger people uh, speak more languages than older generation. There is some change in Hungary as well. But indeed, within the European Union, there is some degree of isolation. Of course, you can still access information that goes contrary to the governmental propaganda. There are various websites and, and opportunities to hear about the other side's argument. But you have to make a a genuine effort. Yeah. So if you are not very educated, you live in a countryside, a small town or village, and you just 
put on the TV to just listen to the regular programs, then you will not hear the case for the opposition. So we've talked about the, the media and information environment. Another area in which uh, Viktor Orban appears to have really broken the rule book is the way in which private actors who are close to him politically benefit. And so, I mean, effectively, it's old school corruption, but it is, in, it is carried out in a ruthlessly partisan manner. Yes, I, I, say, I would say it goes beyond old school in the sense that these businessmen around Fidesz benefit a lot from their association with the government party. And there are many individuals who became credibly rich within very, very short amount of time. But what is new about this system is that A, most of the money comes from the West, from the European Union, and B, these uh, businessmen, they are not the real owners of the property and, and the money that is obtained in this way. So Orban can anytime ask them to give this money back to him or channel this money into the electoral campaign. It seems to me that there's, there, there's still a question about how Viktor Orban is able to sustain this. In general, uh, you know, uh, an economy of a fairly small country that is not at the top of the European wealth league table. Uh, and of course, it needs to have investor confidence. Uh, it would it would seem that that would militate against these types of policies. And yet he's able to continue them year after year. How is he managing to do this? Well, partly he was lucky because he came to power after the big financial crisis, so he benefited from uh, the way world economy has changed after 2010. But also he, he was very clever as strategist in this regard. He basically struck a deal with multinationals. He attracted particularly German companies to Hungary, allows them not only big tax cuts, but also labor law that is very uh, favorable for these employers. So actually, this uh, German manufacturing uh, sector makes a lot of gain out of the privileged relationship uh, to Orban. Yeah. But that also means that they brought in a lot of job, uh, better technology. So this symbiosis with German economy, I think, goes a long way to explain the sustainability of Hungarian uh, economy. And besides, in general, Orban until now had a kind of policy that was very much compatible with international economic structures. So he was extremely careful not to alienate these investors, always paying back loans in time, not taking too much loan in general. So that, that's part one part of the story. Then the other part that I don't know much about, but there, is, there are many rumors uh, that when it comes to relationship with Russia and China, then Orban uh, uses his position within EU to basic and within NATO to channel information to these great powers and in return to get all kinds of um, financial benefits. And he certainly has benefited by continuing to buy Russian gas. He's now basically the only leader in the European Union who continues to be fully dependent on Russian gas at, at a very attractive price. 
Yes, uh, Hungary is an ally of Russia, both economically and ideologically. The ideological one is a genuine friendship uh, between uh, actors who perceive themselves as last bastions of a kind of uh, old-fashioned traditionalist way of thinking that cannot accept the progress that happened in cultural realm in the last decades in the West. So they are very strongly against same-sex marriage, against, in general, the emancipation of minorities. They are uh, very much in favor of church-state symbiosis and and, uh, privileged uh, position of traditional uh, Christian churches. So there is an economic uh, side of the story, but there is also a cultural, ideological one. Yeah. I want to, with the time available to us now, to talk about the actual political structures in Hungary. Uh, We've talked about how Orban has sort of taken over the media, how he's taken over the economy, but he has also actually changed political systems in order to make it easier for him to continue winning elections. Can Can you talk us through that? Yes, he was very imaginative when it uh, came to tinkering with uh, political institutions. One crucial change that he implemented was the change of the electoral system. The Hungarian electoral system was a mixture of proportional and majoritarian elements. He shifted the system closer to the majoritarian logic, which benefited Fidesz as a large party. Then he uh, redrew uh, electoral districts. Then he extended citizenship to Hungarians living in neighboring countries, uh, almost one million of them received Hungarian citizenship and the voting rights comes with that. The whole uh, country uh, has a 10 million population, so one million is a really big change. And these people vote on bloc for Fidesz. So like 94, 95% of them supports Fidesz. And putting all these uh, changes into consideration, the likelihood that Fidesz can be defeated in a normal election where there is no crisis and and no upheaval, revolution or anything like that, is basically close to zero. Yeah. So we saw the case study earlier this year when uh, the united opposition candidate, uh, Peter Marquise, forgive me if I've mangled that name, uh, did not really make any serious headway against uh, Viktor Orban. So what can the opposition do? Because it appears that finding a united opposition, and in this case, finding someone who was uh, culturally conservative, so perhaps to reduce the anxieties that some have about this constant culture war that, that Viktor Orban was engaged in, that did not work. That did not deliver the outcome. How does the Viktor Orban era end? Well, at the moment, as a typical <laughs> pessimist Hungarian, I would say <laughs> it will never end. Right. Uh, uh, like, uh, th- there is really no glimpse of hope anywhere you look. Fidesz and Orban today is stronger than he was a year ago, and a year ago he was stronger than he was two years ago. Having said that, of course, Fidesz has never faced uh, these kind of economic challenges that are on the hor- horizon right now maybe kind of 
change in the mentality of opposition leaders uh, that would take them away from elite politics, building local support as opposed to uh, wasting their time going uh, to the parliament and giving speeches that nobody listens to and being humiliated again and again in arenas that were designed by Fidesz. Instead of that, they could, in principle, try to build more genuine local roots and could challenge the system from bottom up as opposed to international uh, fora like um, European Parliament, uh, international media or or the parliament that, as I mentioned, is completely controlled by Fidesz. So this kind of strategy together with the serious economic impact of the new well, international uh, uh, situation, that could uh, lead to a tipping point where, where, where citizens realize that actually they have a choice. If they are not able to do this, the opposition leaders, and they don't project some kind of competence, I think there is no chance whatsoever. Well, that is a, a sobering point. So I'm not going to end there. What I would like to do is actually ask you to, to advise us, Jolt. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that we are in the serious situation that you face in Hungary. But I do think those of us who care about the health of democracy itself should seek uh, to learn from the Hungarian example. So my final question for you is, what is your advice to uh, people living in countries where populist politics may not have got as far, but there are still these indications. We still see the weakening of our independent institutions. We see highly cynical behavior from political leaders. We, we see the neutrality of the state being brought under question. What is your advice of how we as ordinary citizens should try to confront that trend? I think the lesson from the Hungarian case is that you need to take seriously uh, what politicians say. Once you have a kind of uh, rhetoric, uh, way of behavior that indicates disrespect vis-a-vis uh, -vis your opponent, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, rule of law, vis-a-vis -vis media pluralism, then that should not be dismissed as simply bad manners. That, that is an indication that those politicians do not share some of our um, common values and therefore, we should be very attentful and, and, and you know, we should, we should think about alternatives against that even before they actually get into the government. Yeah, well, I have to say, I can't overstate how important what you're saying feels to someone living in Britain, perhaps someone living in America. There are various countries where we should all take very seriously the words you've just shared with us. So Jolt and Yadi, thank you so much for joining us today, for talking about Hungary, but more importantly, perhaps, helping us understand how it matters for everyone in the world. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Jelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archibald, with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.